0: located in the St. Thomas church in the basement. And then there's also a book that I brought about the traction line. Yes. I don't know where it ended up. It's here somewhere. It might be Shoot. passing around. You so that has other information about the railway as well. Yeah. So is that, a, is that what you're looking uh, for? Yeah, that, that's okay. great. but <coughs> well, we can also, you can come in and we can look things up. We have things, yeah, other things in the office. <coughs> too much on public, but uh, I'm blessed anyway, and I'm the uh, guy who put the Claire Yard, Plumbing Township, Marymount, Fairfax, Hyde Park, thing on next door, in Madisonville, and um, you know, there's a lot of history in Madisonville, Plumbing Township, Marymount, Newtown, which doesn't have really a preservation society that I know of. And Fairfax, uh, I can't find too much on Fairfax. Marymont, quite a bit. Humming Township, a little bit. Hyde Park, quite a bit. Oakley has a lot of history that a lot of people didn't know about, like the uh, racetrack in Oakley, horse racetrack, and a country club, the Pillars Country Club, which was not really a country club, which was more like a city club, like the University Club downtown, Queen City Club. But um, very interesting information, but there's not a whole lot of information on the doors, and so I got to the Mount Lookout, which then closed shortly after when country clubs became a big thing, like Cincinnati Country Club in Hyde Park. But you know, Next Door sent me a letter because the blog I have going on at Next Door is getting so big, they were like, uh, "Are you going to maybe, you know?" get a blog, like a Google Blogspot, or something like that, which is a possibility. And then if we do something like that, everyone that wants to get into it can put their email addresses in, and when something new pops up, you'll get a notification. And you can go to the Blogspot and read about it, or even add to it if you want to. So that's a good possibility, I think, to get a host that probably costs like Bucks a month or something like that, but it would be beneficial for anybody who lives in this area and anybody who's around the United States because on Blog Spot, anybody can get on. You know, I found out from emails you know, so I received and personal messages that a lot of people who live here, in Marymount, Madison, Place, and Fairfax in, in the area, has moved on, you know, over the years. We moved to California, one well, lady was in Arizona, one lady is Ontario, Canada. And they'd like, to, they'd like to see what's going on here because they go to school here in Maryland High School and Marion. And they like to see what's happening here in this area. So, with the blog spot, you can do it on Nextdoor. It's so less somebody sends it to them out <coughs> in Canada. They can't see it. So, <coughs> on a blog, anybody can see it. So, I would think a blog might be the way to go. So, uh, I mean, I appreciate everybody responding back to... Uh, uh, next door and I think that it's kind of inspired me you know, I'm kind of like a, I like to stir the pot once in a while next door mm-hmm. but I also like to inform people what's happening in our area and we have a lot of stuff in this in this area that's history and, and railroads and, you know I'm big on railroads I like going on railroads and this is a kid I used to go to North Fork Southern River down there in North Fork Western go fishing on a Miami River been on a train, John Vance you know, on a train one day, I on mentioned an back and forth the rail yard at Clare. And uh, you know, at one time Clare Yard was a huge hub in Cincinnati until they closed it up and everything to share <coughs> in Guest Street downtown. But uh Clare Yard was huge and the p which runs all the way out to Portsmouth at one time, uh, was a active air for and also the Penn Central, they ran all the way through Terrace Park and beyond. A very active railroad because they cut the rail off in 1980 or something. But now the Piedmont is cut at Plum Run, way up in uh, east of Cincinnati, about 78 miles out. And it's cut because the bridge up in the side of the river uh, is unsafe for trains. But basically, Norfolk Southern cut it off because they can't haul double stacks on the p It's too narrow, it's too hilly, the bridges are not made for double stacks, which most trains now use these containers, they double them up, and uh, they can't get through the bridges because the bridges are too low. So to change all that, Norfolk Southern would cost a fortune. The state would have to give them all of very, very expensive, too. Fix. So that's about all I got to say. Anybody have any questions? Have that? Thank you. We're going to bring up Gary now, who's the railroad historian for this area, and he's going to explain some of it. We're having some problems with the projector here, so we may not be able to get these slides today. So. <coughs> I apologize for that. You should always
1: practice with the projector a month in advance to make sure you have everything correctly. Put everything on car- carousels. Uh, actually, I could have done that. <laughs> uh, my name is Gary Raleigh. I live on Shelton close over in Marymont. And I've been working on railroad history around here for many years. Uh, I gave my first slide program on the P-vine and 1995, if I remember right. And, uh, and I'm also a black and white photographer and uh, do a lot of photography in the area. Uh, but my main aim has been to find old stuff on the Clare Yard and the Pennsylvania Railroad and similar, so I have a lot of negatives. I have an old fashioned chemistry dark room and a larger and all those wonderful things that allow you to do things. Uh, But It gives you an opportunity to make big prints and I brought these today. These are from MPF, Uh, they're postcard size negatives but they show the yard in 1940. And I'll set these, I'll pass them around actually, we'll just do it that way. And we'll talk about the railroad, so I'll give you some some history of what, what the railroads were. There were two railroads down at Clare Yard. One was the Pennsylvania Railroad, which started out as the Little Miami Railroad. Ran from downtown Cincinnati up river, alongside the riverbank, up to Delta Avenue in the precinct restaurant where they had their shops for locomotives round the bend to a yard called Undercliff there by Luncan Airport, and up to a place called Red Bank or Red Bank Junction, and curved over towards what would become Clair yard. Now, Clair yard did not exist in those days. We're talking 1841. So the little Miami Mint went from downtown Clair, or, uh, Cincinnati up to Loveland, Ohio in December of 1841. From Loveland, it went up to Xenia, where it joined with a railroad called the Columbus and Xenia. And then they joined up with other railroads, the Pennsylvania Main Line, actually, in Columbus. So the Little Miami Railroad dominated all the traffic in this area. They were the only railroad. The second railroad was the Marietta and Cincinnati. Which turns into the B and F. and of course the Marietta in Cincinnati came from Marietta, went through Hillsborough through a branch line, but uh, uh, came down through Loveland and Madeira, and then cut over the top of Cincinnati along what was called Bloody Run, and went down the west side of the or east side of Mill Creek into downtown Cincinnati in uh, 1854. There was another railroad that went into Cincinnati called the Cincinnati Hamilton and Dayton, which did so in 1850. And that came down from, it really started in Cincinnati, but uh, made it up to Dayton in 1850. And that was kind of an oddball railroad uh, because it started out as narrow gauge, three foot between the tracks. And then it expanded out to standard gauge, which is four feet, eight and a half inches which is the rail gauge you see today. The other railroad here at Declare was the Cincinnati and Eastern. It started in 1876 and it too was a narrow gauge railroad. In the 1870s there was a craze going through the United States in investing in railroads and the scheme for the three foot gauge was is we can make a railroad cheaper we don't have to buy as much right away because we're not as wide the cars are smaller so they're less costly all is good and i can get into tighter places with the three foot gauge now the big problem of course was is that if you're hauling stuff on a three foot gauge car and you want to connect to a railroad which is four feet eight and a half inches you got a problem and that was ultimately the demise of the three foot gauge railroads uh, but At one time in the late 1870s, there were schemes to have three foot gauge all over the United States and none of it happened. But that's fairly typical with with new technology. There's a lot of money invested in it and a bunch of it gets lost and goes nowhere. All right, so the Cincinnati and Eastern, their scheme was to go out into Claremont County, Brown County and Highland County and eventually end up in Portsmouth, Ohio, because they had foresight. Uh, the idea was that they were gonna bring agricultural products from the Highlands and bring them down into Cincinnati. And they were reasonably successful in doing this. The financiers were mainly people in Sardinia, Ohio, and a crazy bunch in Hillsboro, Ohio, who wanted access to the markets and really you want to get to Cincinnati so you put stuff on the riverboats and away you go. Um, But the narrow gauge influence uh, was in the way. So over the years, the Cincinnati and Eastern tried to make their railroad standard gauge. And they would get partway done and then find out they ran out of money and they would go back to narrow gauge. Regaged the whole thing, and it went back and forth, and it was quite awkward. From where Clair Yard was again, Claryard didn't exist then they ran tracks up to a place called Idlewild, which is at Dana Avenue and Idlewild Street. It's now on the edge of Xavier's campus at uh, Evanston. And they junctioned with a little railroad called the Cincinnati, Lebanon, and Northern, which was also narrow gauge. And the Cincinnati, Lebanon, and Northern went down into Cincinnati on narrow gauge tracks alongside I-71, which you can see those tracks today. And they went down to a little yard at a place called Court Street, which is now where Jack Casino is today had a wood depot down there Um, in Cincinnati we had seven major depots and a bunch of little outliers all of which could get flooded easily uh, except for the ones on the Cincinnati Lebanon and northern Court Street would get flooded but as you started up the hill along and these were the tracks that ran through Baldwin piano if you remember that uh, you were a high ground, so there was no problem. And actually, in 1937, the CLN was the only railroad that functioned in the high water. So most of the trains were rerouted to there as best they could move traffic. And uh, that's the only way we got passengers in and out of the city. All right, get back to the Cincinnati and They're a reasonably successful railroad, but they didn't make enough money to really capitalize themselves and start funding improvements and expansion that they needed. (laughs) They knew if they got to Portsmouth, Ohio, they would start making money because in Portsmouth, Ohio, were two railroads that were of significant size, the Norfolk and Western and the B&O which was on the Wellston subdivision. The Norfolk and Western was digging its way across West Virginia and was busy making business with the introduction of bituminous coal into the coal-burning economy. Up to that time, the good coal was anthracite, which came out of Pennsylvania. Anthracite is very hard coal, mostly carbon very good for certain type of heating applications, but it also forms really good clinkers, and it's kind of hard to work with. Bituminous coal is a softer coal, but it's almost pure carbon, makes great coke for steel making, and West Virginia had fields and fields and fields of it, and it could be dug out of the ground at about half the price of anthracite. Also, if the NNW got their railroad done, they could ship it cheaper. So the NNW's big goal was, let's get through West Virginia, get to Canova, (laughs) build a big bridge across the river into Ohio, take coal to Columbus, Ohio, and then get it shipped up to Lake Erie and we'll feed the steel industry. And oh, by the way, there's this great big town called Cincinnati, which doesn't really have much of anything, we can exploit that market. And the NW actually delivered coal to Cincinnati about two to one over the other railroads. The New York Central, the B&O, the L&N, the Penzi, the C&O, the better deal was the NW coal. All right, the Cincinnati and Eastern finally really runs out of money in 1887. And they sell the railroad out to a new group which forms a new railroad called the Ohio and Northwestern. Same tracks, same everything, but now we have new financiers, mainly English, but now we have a chance to make a successful railroad. So they buy the railroad and in one evening and overnight operation, they standard gauge the whole thing. And now I can take traffic take rail cars at Portsmouth, Ohio and haul them to Cincinnati and haul them back. New problem. It's very simple. The Ohio Northwestern though reforms itself financially and creates a railroad called the V Cincinnati, Portsmouth, and Virginia in 1893 and one of the financiers was the Norfolk and Western Railroad which wants the CPV as a route to get coal into Cincinnati. And the way you got coal was you climb up the hill here and go into Hyde Park, take the tracks along Lawson Road, cross over Bloody Run and and Duck Creek there at where I-71 is today, and go to Idlewild and then take the coal down the track. Well, at the moment, CLNN is narrow gauge, so we gotta argue with them a little bit about turning that into standard gauge. Doesn't exactly happen, they dual gauge that line. So it has three foot tracks and then a four foot, eight and a half foot track to go downtown. And where the Jack's Casino is and where I-71 starts up the hill were a number of big coal docks, which are big platforms where you haul cars up on top of it and underneath are pockets for coal and the hopper cars dump all the coal in these pockets and you unload the coal in there. Also, there's a giant one made at Idlewild, which has 64 pockets, and was there probably when you were kids. Some of it was left there for a while. But that was the big business here, and agricultural products still came through here. Well, in 1901, the N&W buys the CP&V outright, excuse me, 1905, and they want the business and also the CPB has been working on this really interesting little track that goes from Idlewild over to a little place called Berry Yard and goes into Ivorydale and by a little hook and crook by some crazy tracks it gets to Ivorydale and now I got business with Procter and Gamble which is highly desirable. So in 1901, the NW starts to build Claryard. They want a larger facility. And that's the only flat ground around there. Claryard's really an interesting place because it's built slightly uphill. And one of the neat features of it, if you look at the bridge over Red Bank Trestle, there's actually two cuts where you go up to Alt Park. The track now ends at a straight cut and goes to a little <laughs> trestle called Hogback, but if you walk about 50 yards north up there, there's another cut, which was the original Cincinnati and Eastern alignment. They had a big wood trestle there <clears throat> on an s her Never found a photo of that, but it's kind of interesting. Okay, so we've got two railroads here at Clair Yard, the, the Little Miami and Cincinnati and Eastern, which is now the Norfolk and Western. Little Miami becomes part of the Pennsylvania Railroad. The Pennsylvania Railroad releases the whole thing in 1870. And one thing you have to remember about the Pennsylvania Railroad, in 1900, they were the largest corporation in the world had more money than anybody. You know, think Amazon today or any of these big uh, moguls of the internet, all the money that they control. Well, similar situation 100 years ago. Big railroads were very, very powerful. And for instance, when the Pennsylvania Railroad built Penn Station in downtown Manhattan, put in all the tunnels, rearranged all the track, built their connections to the Long Island Railroad, they funded all of that themselves. And it was at billions of dollars even in the, the turn of the century. Bunches of money in that corporation. So this was a very important connection. It got the Pennsylvania Railroad now into downtown Cincinnati, which was a big place. With seven railroads, you have many connections. You have terrific passenger traffic. And uh, all kinds of uh, little omnibuses and stagecoaches and stuff went between all these depots downtown to move passengers around. Very confusing, very ugly, and that's why Cincinnati Union Terminal was built in 1933. It worked, but not very well, and the railroads really weren't interested in seeing a Union Terminal built that they would have to lease. Essentially, they paid for it, and then they leased it. Uh, So they weren't really interested in that, but it made a lot more sense. So that's how Cincinnati Union Terminal was created. All right, getting back to Marymount again, there's another railroad that goes through Marymount proper. And it was an inner urban line called the Cincinnati, Milford, and Loveland. And it was built by Roger. The idea was that we would utilize the new neat technology of electric uh, transmission and electrical motors And we would have inexpensive railroads, which we could run on city streets. And we would have lots of passengers and people and zip people through the community. Made a lot of sense. All the roads were dirt, And muddy roads in the wintertime were almost impassable. So that was the era of interurbans. Unfortunately, they were usually underfunded could not withstand the storms of changes in the business climate very well. And actually most of the interurbans in Ohio suffered greatly in a flood called the 1913 flood, which was a massive gully washer flood. We got, oh, like two foot of water within a week and a half up around Coshocton. came down all the rivers and wiped out all the tracks and bridges everywhere. So the cm went along what's Murray and Rembold Avenue down here. That was their right-of-way. They had a car barn underneath uh, where uh, Erie Avenue crosses Red Bank right now. And they had a car barn there with a loop track. Across the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks, which are tracks that go to Richmond, Indiana, there was the Cincinnati Street Railway tracks. So, you walked across the Penzi tracks to get on a streetcar line and you could go downtown. But the CMNL came out along US 50, again across Murray to US 50, went up through Terrace Park, went through downtown Terrace Park, crossed the river at South Milford. Uh, you can still see the abundance. Uh, excuse me, that uh, CMNB went across on the US 50 bridge and went up Main Street. And went out to uh, 28 and went out to guess what Blanchester never made it to Loveland Mm -hmm. so it had uh, just the connections between Blanchester and all the little towns in between and downtown Cincinnati through the connection here uh, at uh, Erie Avenue that was not a particularly successful route, and the Cincinnati Street Railway buys them in 1930, abandons all the track east of Milford, and just keeps the Milford connection, and actually where you go across the bridge in Milford, go to that right angle turn, at one time that was more or less a little square, and the streetcars would go there and have loop track, go back down the US 50 bridge, across Little Miami and East Fork and head towards Cincinnati. At that time, the street railway had tracks over the Erie Avenue Bridge and they had a direct connection. Um, In, really in 19, let's see, 1930, they cut off at Milford. In 1935, they cut back to Marymont and created the loop track here at Lytle Park, which is now Turnaround Park. That was the end of the route. Um, there was such traffic on the route that Cincinnati Street Railway moved to buses in 1941. So in January of 42, right at the beginning of the war, uh, they quit streetcar service to Marymount. And the tracks went no farther than Erie Avenue and Red Bank. That was the limit, actually. From there, they went up into Madisonville. But US 50 was used as a bus route to get downtown. Nearby, there is another interurban railroad which may not have ever heard of. It was called the Cincinnati and Columbus Interurban. It went through Indian Hill. It starts in downtown Norwood, nowhere close to Cincinnati. Started down by the old waterworks which is now where the swimming pool is by the high school down by uh, East Norwood Tower (coughs) and it came up alongside the B&O climbing Madeira Hill and if we ever get snow on the ground, I suggest doing this in the morning. On a bright sunny day, drive up um, Camargo Road and look up the hill. You'll see one set of tracks up above you which is the old B&O railroad and then up the hillside, you'll see another right-of-way and some more stone bridges. That was the Cincinnati and Columbus Traction Line. As you approached Madeira, it crossed over the b and tracks and went back down on the ground, and they had a station and a substation there just to the south of the new Kroger Building. And if you go on the north side of that building, it clearly says Cincinnati and Columbus substation. Well, there was a depot down in the bottom, and the double doors that are still there in the restored building took you to the waiting area. Then the tracks took off, crossed Camargo Road, and went up an angle road whose name it always eludes me. There's was an angle road that goes behind the high school, and that was their right of way and it went up to the top of Indian Hill where the ranger station is today at a little place then called Ramona. And from Ramona, it went on to the grade school grounds and down a ravine called Redbird Hollow, which is today a walking path that you can get off a given road. And that was originally... it. Uh, the right-of-way, it was turned into a county road for a while, uh, but more recently, it's been a walking path for, gosh, I don't know, a couple decades now, I think. Uh, but it went down into Terrace Park, kissed up against the CMB in Terrace Park, crossed the river south of Milford, and crossed East Fork on some abundance that you can still see, they're about, oh, Two three hundred yards south of the uh, U.S. 50 bridge, and it went up to Hill Street, which is the little street up above Main Street on the east side of town. From Hill Street, it crossed the C.M.B. again, where U.S. 50 and 28 are, stayed to the north side of U.S. 50, and went out of town, and went to Hillsboro, Ohio, where it died. A very unsuccessful little interurban, seriously washed out in the 1913 flood. Their their bridge was washed out initially in 1907 at Milford, and then in 1913 they had to replace it again. Pretty much put them out of business, so in December of 31st of 1919, it quit service, and that's the end of the Cincinnati-Columbus Traction Law. So those are your nearby railroads in the Marymont area. Um, I'm sorry I'm not able to show my slides here. We'll, we will do that at a later date when I get the connection problem solved here. I apologize for that. should have been here a week ago to solve that. Um, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about what uh, business the NW had around here. Uh, The N&W's main business was along the tracks that were along Wasson Road and went through Hyde Park. Around Hyde Park Plaza there were a number of companies, lumber companies and a switch and frog company that made rails uh, and railroad equipment (laughs) that N&W switched tremendously. Then the N&W went to their little yard in Norwood and around that yard were numerous industries, manufacturing industry and especially shoe last industries which are shoe soles, the shoe bottoms. Um, Eventually there was a Western Electric plant there at uh, at Dana Avenue and uh, lots and lots of coal got hauled up to that area. Plus to the little chemical plant which was strictly speaking on the CLN. Uh, From Idlewild, they went down to Berry Yard, and Berry Yard was a marshaling yard for an industrial area across I-75 and the Ohio and Erie Canal, uh, which was called uh, the Ross Estate. And that's where P&G built most of their factories for many years. And there was Ubico Milling down there, which was a grain milling facility. Uh, My railroad buddy said, biggest stretch you ever wanted to see down there.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, but there was uh, tool steel and pinion, which became part of Cincinnati Gear. Um, a box manufacturer, a number of uh, other manufacturing companies. Uh, but Globe Soapworks uh, down there, and a lot of PG affiliates down there as well. Uh, that was their business. Now the other railroad, the Pennsylvania Railroad, of course, had tremendous business here and did a tremendous amount of interchange traffic, calling cars from back east to railroads here where they took them westward. And the Pennsylvania, of course, went all the way to St. Louis from this area as well. Uh, but they had a, a huge industrial base in this area and the outlying areas as well. Um, Anything I can answer for you today? And again, I apologize that I'm not able to show you images.
0: Yes? Uh, Gary, question. Uh, in Miramont,
1: below the bluff, I've always heard stories that there was a hotel. Yes. And a restaurant. Yes. That was quite good. It, and, it, in the 50s, it was quite popular with the locals. Um, every railroad has crews that start at one terminal point, uh, usually called the division point, and they run to a town outward. And then they get trains, new loads of trains, built up at this outward location, and they bring them back to the division point. Those are called road crews. So there were road crews that came from Portsmouth, Ohio, to Clare. They would overnight and then take a new train back east to go back to their home terminal. Where do they stay? They stay at the railroad YMCA. And every railroad had many, many, many buildings along their routes at these division points and the upline terminals that were YMCA affiliates, but run by some division of the railroad in the NAW case, it was the Virginia Holding Company, and it provided bunks and sleeping places for the crews. It also had little restaurants in it for the crews to have lunches or suppers or breakfast, whatever was required. At Clare Yard, there were also little sheds along the river. They were east of the bridge and ran up along the riverbank. Some were built by the railroad and many were built by the crews as their own little cabin. Uh, Back in these days, it was not uncommon to have some type of little weekend cabin along a river and we had many. Uh, You took your little interurban or your streetcar or whatever and got out of town on the weekends and went to your river cabin because it was so much cooler uh, but the railroad crews would gather scrap and dunnage and whatever and build their little overnight cabins alongside the river. And there were probably a dozen and a half along the riverbank. And they lasted for many years. Uh, finally, the kids burned them down when the yard was abandoned in 1982 when the NNW merged with the Southern then all the trains went to Guest Street Yard, which is behind Cincinnati Union Terminal. Um, Also at Clare Yard were livestock pens. Mm. Every, periodically, every uh, livestock car has to get watered. Um, You bring the cattle and the sheep and all of those critters out, put them in a pen and water them. Pigs, interestingly enough, get sluiced. What is sluicing? (laughs) had big water jets, basically fire hoses, and you pulled the stock cars past them and just washed water across them Mm -hmm. to cool them off. Pigs traveled better being sluiced rather than run out, fed, and watered in a pen. They got sluiced. Uh, If you go back into the old rule books and stuff, you'll, you'll learn about sluicing. Had to be done a certain way, too. There was a right way and a wrong way to sluice pigs. Um, At Clare Yard, and it's still there today, is a long concrete wall. It's hidden by much of the weeds, uh, but it's back there if you get back behind, that little yard office is there. Um, This was built in 1917. It has a 1917 date stamp on it and there was a big coal dock built on top of that. There were 10 pockets on this coal dock and going eastward was a track that dropped down the hillside and the N and W would push loaded hopper cars up on top of this coal dock. Steam locomotives would push in alongside this wall, chutes would drop down from the pockets and load the tenders with coal. Of course, the N&W used N&W Coal to power their locomotives. And that was one of the big uh, servicing facilities at the yard. Uh, There was a, of course, a water tank, and you could go down the road on the east side of the yard and look into the top of this big water tank. It was a 50,000 gallon water tank, had no top on it, Uh, but they pumped water out of the Little Miami River and ran it through a water saw. With boilers, you do not want hard water. So next to the water tank was this long, rectangular, tall building that was the water softener service. If you look at the yard today, just to the east of the trestle bridge is a concrete structure with trees growing out of it now. It's hard to see now because the trees have gotten so big. That was the water pumping station. So they pulled water out of the river just upstream of that bridge, pushed it through the water softener, and put it into the water tank. If you walk across the trestle bridge and go to Clear Creek, which is the next slough beyond Clareyard, you will find there is a turning Y. Claryard, being on this little tight piece of ground had a two stall roundhouse and a 75 foot turntable so they could work on small locomotives which were used for switching work and transfer work but the big road locomotives that the NW had which were 2882s or two 6x um, fours uh, did not fit on a 75foot turntable they needed a 110 foot turntable. Well, there was no room for that, so they went to Clear Creek and built a track which curved out and gave a long tail, Then they backed the locomotive up and got back on the main line and turned the locomotives that way. It's called a turning line. Still there today. Full of trees.
0: Yes, sir. What happens if I walk down there? <laughs> Is somebody going to run Nothing. me out? I'm just curious. When my kids were little, we used to push the strollers. All the way across Marymont, all the way down the hill, go out on the bridge, and and sometimes we get to watch the trains come through, and the kids love waving at them. Okay.
1: The two roads into Claryard—that is, the the east road, which dropped you back down to the YMCA and the east end of the yard, and the garden crossing and the garden tunnel—are actually deeded public access. They were used so long ago going back to essentially the turn of the century the 1800s that when the railroads acquired all this property they were not allowed to block public access and so to do to, to today you can still go down those roadways and you have a perfect right to do so the public access on the east end was to go down to the spring How many know there was a spring down in the yard? Okay. The spring goes back to about 1789, probably a lot earlier because of the Indian populations that were around here. But there's always been a spring and there's always been people utilizing it. And say, starting in the 40s, they turned it into almost like a little artesian. Well, it had a big circular fountain around this thing and the pipe came out of the ground and went up and the water would squirt out of it. And the old timers would come down there and fill up their jugs and take that water home. So if you were living with a cistern water, you got your water at Marymont. Um, sometime in the 60s the N&W examined the water and claimed that it was uh, full of bacteria and it was not potable anymore. Probably true, but a lot of people say, eh, it was just to keep all the people from going down there and getting their water out. So today, the Marymount Police Department, which is not uh, the proper police department for the yard because it's in Columbia Township, maintains that public access means access to the river and the bridge. So, yeah, you can go out there. Um,
0: Where exactly is that? I, I don't... That access that spring?
1: Uh, the spring is covered up. Nick. It is gone. Or to the bridge. Uh, if you go to Cash Pit, there's a road that is washing out that starts down the hillside and goes down towards the concourse and that will take you down to the end of the trestle bridge. And that was the east end of the yard. That was a road we used to get really down. Much of that road has yeah. suffered recently and is, has yeah. slid down the hillside. Um, it has been sliding down the hillside for well over 100 years. So now the railroad just do not have to maintain it. The railroad actually owns to the crest of the hill. I guess that would be called the toe of the hill. And the railroad has controlled all of that. Um, The the garden tunnel there is of course by the swimming pool. Now, when the yard was started in 1901, there was no tunnel, but there was a little crazy wood trestle bridge that created a a little tunnel that went underneath the Cincinnati and Eastern Tracks going up to Idlewild. And as the yard got bigger and bigger and bigger, they covered that over and created a tunnel so they could get more tracks across. Um, But um, one other thing too, and it's a little aside story, just to the west of where the swimming pools are in the yard was a scale house. So it was called a moving scale and it has big balance beam type scale in it where you could pull, loaded coal cars across it and weighed them while they were in low motion. Um, back in 93, when they wanted to turn the yard into a facility for bulk bulkmatic, uh, which was a transload facility, they took stuff out of rail cars and put it in trucks and delivered it, uh, they wanted to build an access road, which is there today. And I can remember distinctly that They brought in an ordinary backhoe with a jackhammer on the backhoe, and we're gonna break up that concrete. Well, railroads, when they build concrete structures, they're aiming to build forever. So the concrete, instead of just regular rebar in it, it was built up with used rail, (laughs) 175 pound and 100 pound rail. So it was all welded together rail inside this thing. And they brought the little backhoe out and they chipped some little golf ball sized things off. Didn't get anywhere. Next day, they brought a bigger backhoe in and chipped softball sized chunks off of it. And the day after that, they brought in a crawler tractor with the big jackhammer on the backhoe and chopped off stuff about the size of basketballs. And the day after that, they revised their drawings and built the hump over it, built the road <laughs> over the top of it, and decided that they were not going to attack the turntable pit in the bottom of Clare Yard because it wasn't gonna happen. So yes, railroads built from um, air. At the yard uh, were a number of servicing buildings. There was the yard office building that sat next to the tower who remembers the tower? Okay, the tower was brought down in 93. It was a Pennsylvania operated tower. It was part ownership by the NNW and the Pennsylvania. Based on the amount of trains that go through there, they split the costs. And a Pennsylvania operator ran Clare Tower. And he also operated the switches down here on Red Bank at the big Y that's there connecting. There's a track that goes to Richmond, Indiana that runs along. Red Bank Road to the north and you could go either direction because one of the directions got you down to Cincinnati Union Terminal using the B&O tracks. Uh, yeah, it's involved around here. Um, but Clare Tower controlled all that for years. Um, today all of that's controlled such as it is by the tower that's left there at Rencombe Drunk Junction where the bus turnaround is uh, on Eastern Avenue. That still has all of the control boxes in it. Um, There was a depot across from the tower and called Claire. Claire is the name of the Pennsylvania Railroad superintendent's son, which is why it's C-L-A-R-E. It's a male type of Claire as opposed to using an I. But that's where the name came from. Originally, the depot sat on the upstream side of the bridge. And for reasons of convenience, they picked it up and moved it down to the uh, western side of the tracks. So NW trains would come in, curve around a connection track, which is gone now, uh, it's been revised, and drop off passengers at at Clare before they went down to the Panhandle Depot at the end of the L&N bridge on Eastern Avenue. Um, there were crew registers or crew lockers uh, where your crews came in, they signed in and signed themselves on duty and had all their lockers there. It's called a crew register. Um, I have a little metal plaque about that big. I'll bring it next time. And it is the high water mark for the 1913 flood It was at the base of the crew register. The crew register sat up against the hillside, and the water in the 1913 flood at that end of the yard was essentially a foot deep. The 1937 flood, there is a tag, which I do not have, and I don't know who has it. For the 1937 flood, it was underneath the eaves. So the water was about 10 feet deep. And that trestle bridge was about half buried in water during the 37 flood. That bridge was actually built about 1898 and has been damaged and revised a little bit. They actually picked up one trestle, curved a little bit more so they had a better curve coming into the yard. But to all intents and purposes, it's uh, over 100 years old and still going strong. I've got a little bit of trivia here the arrow for Cincinnati Waterworks at River Station fell off the wall. And one of my jobs there is I had to go down there and drill new anchor holes and put it back to the same level yeah. and the same place at River Station. If any of you have ever taken the River Station tour at Waterworks, it's there's a website called Cincinnati Triple Steam. You get on it, you read about it, then you put, enter your email address and you can tour a pump house built in 1896 to 1907 online. It's hmm. still there, the engines are still in the building. Yeah. Yeah, Cincinnati Waterworks was actually built on a route of another interurban railroad, uh, which has a very involved history called the Cincinnati Georgetown in Portsmouth. It was also known as the railroad with three gauges. It was narrow gauge and standard gauge and Cincinnati Street Railway gauge, which was five feet, two inches. So they had three sets of tracks going across the levee uh, along Kellogg Avenue and uh, the airport. Uh, but they use steam locomotives and standard rail cars to haul all the equipment up to California to build that facility. Um, all right, Rob. books, let's talk about books books where you can learn about things about railroads. Uh, No one has ever written a complete and total book about Cincinnati Railroad history. Uh, It'll probably end up being me, but there's uh, a couple of books that are worth reading. This one is over in um, MPF. It's written by David McNeil and dave mcneil was a science teacher at marymont for gosh about 20 years i think and then he became a principal for the wyoming school district and moved over there but dave wrote three books one it was on the CGP called the railroad with three gauges um, the uh cincinnati milford and loveland book were otherwise known as the kroger line and also the cincinnati and columbus traction line which was also known as the swing line from the swing interest that controlled it. Uh, This book has a lot of uh, good photos. Uh, Dave always believed, though, in self-publishing, so he kind of went with the telephone book printing style so his, his photos aren't so hot. But all of his photos and slides and such are in the Cincinnati Public Library controlled by a group called the Rail Buffs. So if you go to the Cincinnati Special Collections, you can see most of these things. This is a good little book to have. It shows shots around a Park that are just mind-boggling, frankly. Uh, It's it's a good one to have. Out of print. Long out of print. Um, Another book that was done recently was the Pennsylvania Railroad in Cincinnati. Yes.
0: Sorry, but I believe we still have copies of that at NPM. Uh, hopefully they do. Yeah. yeah. When you said out uh, of print, I mean. Yeah, it's long out of print. Yeah. Long I'm out of print. But, but worth owning. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. Yeah, we have some Terrace as well. Uh, the other book is The Pennsylvania Railroad in Cincinnati, done by uh, Rick Tipton out of Louisville. Um, the first third of this book is mostly my collection of photos uh, from around this area. So, ah, we'll see them soon. Um but this is a good book to, to have too. This too is out of print. And it's always good to track these down.
0: They still have that at Union Terminal, in the bookstore. I was just down there. Yeah, they, now, they probably are about the
1: last one to have it because they bought quite a few. What is the name of
0: that
1: place? It's called the Pennsylvania Railroad in Cincinnati. Yes, yes sir. Are the real buffs the
0: guys
1: that
0: have the club meetings in the old Union Terminal up in No. Now. Okay, Um,
1: rail buffs are a bunch of guys who are old as Methuselah. They know everything up to April of 1951 because that's when the street railway system quit using streetcars. After that, but they're trolley enthusiasts. They're streetcar enthusiasts and trolley enthusiasts. They're old gentlemen and they meet the second Monday of each month in the Queensgate bus training room. So they, they meet in the sort of training room at Queensgate. So you just park in the visitor's lot, say you're here for the rail buffs and away you go. If you wanna see old stuff, old streetcars, old interurbans, old stuff around here, it's fabulous. Every April, they have to revisit the Cincinnati Street Railway because of its demise. And neat bunch of guys. Um, getting really old, though. I go there. I'm, I am a grandkid. I don't know when I go to that place. <laughs> um, but a lot of real local history has been retained by those gentlemen. Have okay. you ever heard of Wagner and Wright? Oh, yeah. Wagner right? Wright. Yeah. Wrote little, 10 volumes on the Cincinnati Street Well. 11, 11 volumes. They're, they're on eBay. You can buy the whole history of the Cincinnati yep. Street uh, Railway System. Yeah, their book on the inclines is the best one out there, period. Yeah. If, if you want to see really good information on the inclines in Cincinnati, their book is the only one to have. There's been others done since then, but nah, go for that one. It's there and it's correct. Um, the other railroad group in town is called Cincinnati Railroad Club. They met in the Tower A up in Cincinnati Union Terminal on the first Thursday of each month. And uh, they are now now in Tower A. With the remodeling of Tower A, uh, the Museum Center raised the rates for rental to an unbelievable, breathtaking amount relative to the finances of the Cincinnati Railroad Club. So they meet at Harmony Lodge now. Uh, But that's gonna get torn down soon too, so I'm not sure where we're gonna go. Um, The other group is the MRHS chapter of the, uh, Cincinnati chapter of the National Railroad Historical Society, and they meet up at EJs, or Entertainment Junction, on the fourth, Thursday of each month, and they cover a lot of relevant history that way, too. If anybody ever takes a tour at Waterworks and you're heading down Phil Road to River Station, if you look on the right, there is a set of two gauge, dual gauge tracks, yes. still in still the ground. Still in the ground. Uh, the other good book on Cincinnati is one done by uh, Denny Hamilton, who lived around here for years. But he photographed lots and lots of stuff around the 50s and 60s and 70s. So for later history of Cincinnati, uh, this is a decent book to look at too. Uh, Yes, somebody needs to do a book on Cincinnati railroad history. And like I said, it'll probably be me here when I eventually retire. And uh, it's worthwhile. All right, let's talk about passenger traffic for a moment.
0: I was going to bring up you talking about that
1: track that went out to Blanchester. Yes. My uh, aunt and
0: uncle and grandparents used to ride on that. Tractor yeah, tractor. that was B and O. And the bed, all oh, of that bed is still there. It's not far from my house. I would probably shoot a slingshot and hit it. But there's still.
1: Oh, you're talking places. about the C and C? Yeah, you yeah, can still see a lot of it. Mile
0: yeah. Four miles left through a neighborhood. Yeah, you,
1: you can colors. you can actually follow the Cincinnati and Columbus traction line once you get out past Milford, you can find the CNC and c right away and follow that out to Hillsboro. Yeah. There's still quite a bit of that left. Of course, the, the B&O line to Marietta has been uh, cut off and blockaded now. It's been, they actually. Yeah, they
0: pulled, uh...
1: Railroads have an interesting way of getting property. Back when you were starting, yeah, it's always a queasy high-risk operation. So I approach a farmer and I say, I'd like to build a railroad across your line. And here's how I'll give you a deal. I will build my tracks across your line. And if the railroad doesn't happen, this is speculation, but if it just doesn't financially happen, I'll deed it such that you get your property back. It's called a reversion deed. And this was done all over the United States, especially in the East. And uh, the B&O, actually CSX, abandoned the line from um, Midland City, actually, all the way out to Marietta and didn't realize that most of the property was on reversion deed, so everybody took the land back. So it's it's to your heirs or assignees. So as soon as they lifted the track, they lost the deed. People took their property Uh back Then a few years later, when traffic really picked up, CSX said, gosh, I sure wish I had that line. The right-of-way is still there. I'll just put ties down and rail down, and away we go. And they went out there, and the people said, uh-uh, I'm not going to give you my property back, so they lost.